But if I were a betting man, I would have to put my money on another celebration that hasn't even taken place yet. And I believe this celebration will outdo any that has ever taken place throughout the history of the world. I wonder if you can think of the celebration I'm thinking of. But before we go into that, I have another question. If you were asked to name the most important wedding ceremony that could ever be, which wedding ceremony would it be? And then, <clears throat> if you had the name of the most powerful warrior of all time, who might you name? <laughs> Don't tell anybody. Well, you know, we'll look at those answers as we go through our text this morning. But just before we do, I want to say a few things about the most wicked city that ever existed. I might say cities. We've mentioned it before in this series on Revelation. And the city I'm referring to is first century Rome which became the capital of the powerful Roman Empire. The Roman Empire lasted 500 years. But the Bible refers to this first century Rome city as Babylon, because Babylon was the name of an evil city back 600 BC that took the captives, took the Israelites captive. But as John, the, the uh, Apostle John, was receiving these visions that became the book of Revelation, he was living in that evil empire of Rome. And what began as a republic, the Roman Republic, eventually turned into an empire led by dictators who focused on expansion of their empire and consolidation. And the Roman Empire had its share of wicked dictators that we've heard about through history. And what they did was move toward greater and greater central control, which then made the government people the elite and wealthy, while the people, the common people, became servants of their political rulers. And that's how things go in governments, because people get power, and then they want more power and more power, and the common people kind of get stepped on. And last week we saw that Rome, referred to by the name Babylon, in the end times, just before Christ's return, will face this horrific judgment from God. And Rome was called <clears throat> the harlot or the prostitute with whom the kings of the earth and the wealthy world-traveling merchants and the famous sea captains who traded the world's treasures, the Bible says that these very wealthy and very prominent people were committing adultery with the great harlot Babylon, who we know to be Rome. 
And we're talking about these relationships between these merchants, these kings, these sea captains, with Babylon, with Rome, relationships that led to wickedness, enriching the few elites, because of the, and, and just pouring it on the suffering, the suffering on the, the uh, common person. And so the Bible says that wicked city will face the end-time judgment of God, a severe judgment. And John the Apostle is seeing this take place in a vision. It led many people astray, and we saw then in the book of Revelation how Satan used that city. He formed his own unholy trinity to carry out his plan, and it became even more wicked. And then at the end of Revelation 18, we see the fall of Babylon. God destroys it, you know, in a vision given to John. He's showing what's going to happen, and he destroys that city of Babylon, Rome. <clears throat> and we see the wealthy and the powerful of the world as they see Babylon burning and the smoke going up to the sky. They're wailing, and they're crying and they're grieving because that's where they got all their riches and importance. So I want to read to you a few verses from chapter 18 before we get into our main text. It's 18, 21 through 24. Then a mighty angel picked up a boulder the size of a large millstone and threw it into the sea and said, With such violence the great city of Babylon will be thrown down, never to be found again. The music of harpists and musicians, pipers and trumpeters, will never be heard in you again. No worker of any trade will ever be found in you again. The sound of a millstone will never be heard in you again. The light of a lamp will never shine in you again. The voice of bridegroom and bride will never be heard in you again. You merchant, your merchants were the world's important people. By your magic spell, all the nations were led astray. In her was found the blood of prophets and of God's holy people, of all who have been slaughtered on the earth. Now that is the scene on earth at the end of this age. And that's what's going to happen as John sees it in a vision. Now, I invite you to follow along to see what I think will be the greatest celebration victory of any one we've ever seen or heard or has been. And we're in chapter 19 and the first five verses of Revelation. <clears throat> he says, after this, I heard what sounded like the roar of a great multitude in heaven shouting, Hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God. So he's hearing this great, big, explosive uh, shouting of praise. For true and just are his judgments. <clears throat> he has condemned the great prostitute who corrupted the earth by her adulteries. He has avenged her on the blood of he avenged her the blood of his servants. And again they shouted, Hallelujah! The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. And that was what was making the merchants cry and 
grieve. The 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshipped God who was seated on the throne. These are, this, uh, these are heavenly beings surrounding the throne of God all the time. And they cried, Amen, Hallelujah. Then a voice came from the throne saying, Praise our God, all you his servants, you who fear him, both great and small. That is what I believe will be the greatest and certainly the most significant celebration of victory of all times. I believe it will outdo anything we've heard from any other kind of event, even the ones that we've seen in recent past. When God begins to judge the earth, as well as avenging the blood of his faithful servants who were killed because of their faithfulness to Christ, their allegiance to God, there's this great cry of of victory that finally righteousness has come upon the earth. And you just think how long so many who gave their lives for the cause of the Christ have waited to see the righteousness of God finally come out, finally win out. How exciting it must be. That's why there's this great explosion in heaven. The destruction of Babylon, because it it stands for the destruction of all evil cities and evil on the earth. It's a very significant act of God to fulfill all righteousness and to reclaim his creation. Because, you know, Satan came in, as we all know, and he kind of ruined everything. And now God is getting it all back. And we're going to be rewarded with that. And you know, sometimes we may shake our heads because we see so much evil go unpunished. We see it, and we see people getting away with so much. We may think, God, where are you? You know, you're righteous. How can all this evil go on? And you know, that's actually the reason many people give for not believing in God. Or the reason people give or stop believing in God. And what it really boils down to, if you think that through, it boils down to a person is telling God what he must do, what God must do, or when he must do something in order for him to believe in him. But if you look again at verse 5, A voice came from the throne saying, Praise our God, all you his servants, you who fear him, both great and small. That's a powerful verse. All you his servants. We human beings are supposed to be his servants. He isn't obliged to follow our schedules or carry out our salvation according to our plans. We are his creation. He gave us life. He breathed into us the breath of life. He didn't have to. He rules the universe. He's also the supreme king who sacrificed his son to pay for our sins so that we could live with him forever. We are not supposed to tell him what he must do in order to get our approval. 
And I kind of think that's what atheism is. It's basically telling God what he must do in order for me to allow him to exist. I think we get it all turned upside down. But all of us, or all those who know the truth about God, we are praising him for the way he is bringing about righteousness. Praise our God, all you who serve his servants, you who fear him, both great and small. And really, that is really what the fear of God is all about. The fear of God isn't walking around wondering when God is going to clobber us for doing something wrong. The fear of God in the Bible is this deep, deep reverence because God is so holy and he is so righteous and he's so kind and loving. And it's this deep reverence for God because of his great holiness and it's also a sincere thankfulness for his love and kindness. Praise God, all you his servants, you who fear him, both great and small. And then, oh, that's what I wanted there. <clears throat> now, all of that was praising God for his righteous judgment of the great prostitute. She was the prostitute who corrupted the earth by her adulteries. And this is what was said back. Babylon the Great, the mother of prostitutes and of the abominations of the earth. And so here we have this <clears throat> eruption that goes on in heaven because Babylon has been judged. And it's because it is righteous and it was the thing that God in his righteousness was going to have to do. And whenever God judges people, they've already had chances to repent. And we saw in earlier chapters that God was sending judgment and they just, they just refused to repent and refused to repent. So now we're going to another reason why heaven is erupting in praise of God. Another great celebration in verses 6 through 10. Then I heard what sounded like a great multitude like the roar of rushing waters and the loud peals of thunder shouting, Hallelujah, for our Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory, for the wedding of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given, to wear, given her to wear. Fine linen stands for the righteous acts of God's holy people. Then the angel said to me, Write this, blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. And he added, these are the true words of God. At this, I fell at his feet to worship him, the angel. But he said to me, don't do that. I am a fellow servant with you and with your brothers and sisters who hold to the testimony of Jesus. <clears throat> So here we have another gigantic eruption of loud praise for God. And it's the praise of a wedding. You know, weddings are known for being exuberant and joyful and huge celebrations, right? But this wedding outdoes them all. 
This is the wedding of the bride of Christ to her Savior husband. You know, it's really so nice when a bride here on earth sees her husband as someone she really looks up to and respects, and she's excited about getting married to him. And then this marriage has that good foundation where they love one another, the husband is ready to protect and serve and, and uh, provide, and the wife is ready to just love her husband and take care of the kids and be his partner. <clears throat> now just imagine, you know, you think of that love and excitement and just looking forward to the future of the, that young couple. And just imagine when we the church, are a part of the wedding of the Lamb. And the one that we're getting married to is actually our Savior who went to the cross and defeated Satan so we could be a part of his glorious kingdom forever. So we have this gigantic explosion or eruption of joyful praise because Christ is bringing us into his eternal glorious kingdom. Our sins have been wiped away. That's the only way we can enter. And Christ paid that, that price. Our enemy has been defeated. Satan no longer has any chance to trip us up. We are in. We're part of the kingdom. And you know, it says the apostle John was so moved by this, he fell at the angel's feet to worship him. Now, I'll bet that John knew we weren't supposed to worship angels. I think he was just so overwhelmed at the whole scene of the wedding of the Lamb that it just knocked him to his knees. And so I'm thinking, here's John watching this vision of the wedding of the Lamb, and he's so moved at this, this angel's appearance that he, he falls to his knees and I'm thinking, just how, think how moving it will be to actually be a part of the real wedding of the Lamb and not the vision. Now, I do understand that it may be a little difficult or awkward for us men to think of being a bride at a wedding. But I think <clears throat> that as we are there, at the actual celebration and we see Jesus Christ in his powerful glory and also we see his wounds and we have that we cross over into that fuller spiritual understanding of what everything means of what he did and how glorious he is I think it won't even matter that we're called the bride I think we'll be happy to be the bride. It'll move into a whole other realm of meaning. And then we will be receiving the reward for our faithfulness, for our perseverance, our determination to stay with Jesus Christ no matter the cost. And now we're coming to the last part of John's vision in this chapter. And we're going to see something pretty spectacular as we move closer, as we're moving closer and closer to the end of this age. And as we look at this, my thought was, you can't even make this stuff up. 
But it's all certainly going to happen if you're on the right side of history. So, looking at verses 11 through 16. Oh, that that belongs to the last part. Worship God, for it is the spirit of prophecy who bears testimony to Jesus. That's what the angel was telling John. Now, here's John with another vision. I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice he judges and wages war. His eyes are like blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. He he is dressed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is the Word of God. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Coming out of his mouth is a sharp sword with which, he, with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has this name, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. I want to look at some some parts of that. But we're talking about Christ's return. We're talking about the event that we've been looking forward to ever since we became a Christian. Christ's return. When all evil is expunged. He's coming on a war horse. He's coming as a conquering king. He submitted himself to human arrest, punishment, and death for our sake. And if you haven't turned to Christ at this, by this time that we're talking about, you've lost. You know, he says, the writer is called faithful and true. With justice he judges and wages war. He remains faithful to God in a hostile world. And we saw him do that. And he remains true to his calling and purpose. He judges and wages war with justice, with righteousness. And so anything that he does, even when it's, you know, punishing man, bringing judgment, he does it in righteousness. Even his role as judge and conqueror He executes it with complete righteousness. No one will be able to bring any accusation against him even as he is destroying the enemy because it's all righteous. You know, today, people bring lots of accusations against God and against Christ and against the church. That's all going to end. Even those who do as they're standing there at the judgment They won't be able to do it. It's all over. Christ reigns supremely. God's ways are right. It says his eyes are like blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns. 
His eyes like blazing fire. He has penetrating vision. He completely is able to discern between good and evil because his eyes just pierce through. He will not make one mistake in his judgment. Many crowns on his head show him to be the king of kings. Although earthly kings are limited in their authority and their reign and, and even by some laws in their kingdom, his kingly reign is absolute and eternal and limitless. He says, <clears throat> written on him, has his name written on him that no one knows but he himself. In the Bible, names are very significant and they have meaning. People, when they name their children, name them for the meaning. And this shows that although he knows mankind thoroughly with his blazing eyes, <clears throat> and that he is discerning, the discerning judge of mankind, yet he himself is not known thoroughly by us. And Bible scholars feel that since it is a hidden name, a name that only he knows, and, and, and nobody else really knows what it means, <clears throat> Bible scholars feel like perhaps when we are fully redeemed, and we have fuller understanding as we pass into that, <clears throat> that greater knowledge, we may learn what that hidden name means. And it may bring us even into fuller knowledge and, and, and into closer fellowship with Christ to know him even better. You know, Christ said in the Gospels that he couldn't wait until his disciples were with him in glory and can know him fully. <clears throat> it also says, he's dressed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is the word of God. That robe dipped in blood is like he's, he's trouncing people at the judgment, and the blood is rising up, and his robe is dipped in blood. That's him as a warrior. His name is the word of God. He, you know, the word... When I say a word, it's the expression of what I'm thinking. He is the expression of God the Father. And in this context of battle, it could likely mean that he's the one proclaiming God's judgment upon his enemies. He is the word of God. He brings judgment. He brings the proclamation of God. And then the verses go on to say... <clears throat> The armies were following him, riding on white horses, dressed in fine linen, white and clean. White and clean stand for purity and victory. A sharp sword comes from his mouth with which to strike down the nations. He will rule the nations with an iron scepter. That means... His rule will be unchallenged. People feel good about challenging God today, about defaming Christ. Thinking people think they're really cool if they say blasphem, blasphemous things against God. Ain't going to happen up there. It all ends down here. It says he treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. 
This is God's calculated, righteous, end-time judgment of evil and rebellion against God. The world has rejected God, (coughs) even though God has always allowed for repentance. Even the most horrible criminals, some have repented and they've received forgiveness from God. But these people are ones who refuse to repent, even after all the judgments and God gave them a chance to turn. It's like they became insanely evil, evil enough to try to defeat the Son of God coming from heaven on a war horse. And so he's coming and a sharp sword comes out and strikes down the nations. And on his robe and on his thigh he has this name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And now we talked about a supper, the wedding lamb, the wedding supper of the lamb. Here we're talking about another supper. I saw an angel standing in the sun who cried in a loud voice to, to all the birds flying in midair, come gather together for the great supper of God <clears throat> so that you may eat the flesh of kings, generals, and the mighty and of the mighty, of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all people, free and slave, great and small. So everyone makes their own decision, you know, for their eternal destiny. And we can either be a part of the wedding supper of the Lamb with great rejoicing, great reward, or be a part of the great supper of God, which won't be pleasant. And it seems crazy that people will hold out, even when it's so obvious they can't win. When Christ is coming down from heaven on a horse with a sword coming out of his mouth, And these people are still going to try to stop him. That's just kind of unbelievable. I think it's when people, when they get into such a level of evil, they become insane in that way. And so now we have the final scene. When God deals with the false prophet and the beast. Then I saw the beast, and that would be the Antichrist. And the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to wage war against the rider on the horse and his army. But the beast was captured, and with it the false prophet, that was the counterpoint to the Holy Spirit from Satan, the Antichrist and his prophet, who had performed the signs on its behalf. With these signs, he had deluded those who had received the mark of the beast and worshipped its image. The two of them were thrown alive into the fiery lake of burning sulfur. The rest were killed with the sword coming out of the mouth of the rider on the horse. And all the birds gorged themselves on their flesh. It is never a pretty picture to oppose God. 
it has zero chance of being successful. And although on earth we can feel like we're winning when we go against God, when it all comes down to the truth and what is real, there's no chance. And the sad thing is that so many in our land seem to be making this choice. You know, our country was built on good morals and even on, on belief in Christ. And we're losing what should be a healthy fear of God. It used to be people that didn't even go to church had some kind of a fear of God <clears throat> because God was elevated in our culture. But today it's just dissipating. And every person is going to answer for the choice they made. Answer to God. And in the end, God will not be defeated. His ways are true and righteous. And if we just keep our minds down here on what's happening here, I mean, we need to do that, but we need to look up to and realize what's going to happen in the end. His ways are true and righteous, and they will win. He offered his sinless, glorified, eternal son to pay our way into eternal life, to experience his presence forever. So we have <clears throat> seen some pretty impressive celebrations in our day, celebrations that move us, that bring us joy, that impress us, and we, we maybe can't take our eyes off. But we haven't seen anything like we are going to see. The great, the great roar from the multitude in heaven. Hallelujah. After this, I heard what the sounded like, the roar of a great multitude in heaven shouting, Hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God. For true and righteous are his judgments. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have given us so much information about the end and that we can just rest assured even though things don't always go well here and sometimes things go really, really bad Father, we know that just right beyond there's peace and righteousness and glory and eternity. And you are true. Everything you've done, it's been true. It's come true. And so, Lord, now we're trusting in your word, your faithfulness, your love to rescue us in the end and to bring us to glory. Thank you for your promises. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.